That purple drink is dark, my friend. Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about the murder of Jamie Melgar. And uh, where did you do your research on this one, Katie? I watched the 2020 episode called Till Death Do Us Part, freesandymelgar.com, and Sandy's Police Interrogation. And where are we going for this one, Katie? This one is in Houston, Texas. All right, you want to go ahead and start us off, Katie? Jamie Melgar, who went by Jim, was born in Guatemala and immigrated to Houston, Texas when he was three years old. In high school, he met Sandra McCulloch, and the two quickly fell in love. Did he bother the people who were named James? And they went by Jim, and then they felt like, this guy's stealing our, our, our shortened version. No, his name was probably Jaime. Yeah, nobody, I, that's what I figured too, and nobody pronounced it that way in anything. They all called him Jamie, so I don't know hmm, I'm what telling the you, correct thing is. He should have been going by James. They married not long after graduating and began their lives together. They joined the Jehovah's Witnesses, an offshoot of Christianity with very strict beliefs. Jehovah's Witnesses do not participate in any holidays that may have pagan origins, such as Easter, Christmas, and birthdays. Which gives them extra days off from work with nothing to do. Depending on who you ask, you may hear it referred to as a cult, almost like a less expensive Scientology. Jim and Sandy had one child together, a daughter who they named Liz. Their lives were seemingly perfect, and Liz recalls growing up in a very loving household. Sandy suffered from epilepsy that gave her grand mal seizures, which are categorized by a loss of consciousness and muscle contractions and generally are the ones people think of when they picture a seizure. When Liz was three, Sandy was diagnosed with lupus, an autoimmune disease that's caused by the immune system attacking the body's tissues and organs. Liz recalls that after her mother's diagnosis, she spent six weeks in treatment and began to heavily rely on Jim for day-to-day activities. Sandy would eventually also be diagnosed with hyperthyroidism, likely caused by her lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and eventually went on to have a double hip replacement after receiving bone grafts. They did bone grafts in her old knees and then didn't work, so they had to give her... It was her hips, but yes. Oh, in her old hips. Needless to say, Sandy was not in the best health and certainly wasn't strong, using a cane to get around. On December 22nd, 2012, Jim and Sandy were celebrating their 32nd wedding anniversary. They went to their favorite Mexican restaurant for dinner and stopped at a nearby drugstore on their way home to get some drink mixers. Once home, they entered through their garage door. They mixed some drinks and headed into the bathroom where they started up their jacuzzi tub and got in. What were their drinks, do you know? Their mixers, I know for sure, were Pepsi and Sprite. I don't know what alcohol they were using. What if they were just mixing Pepsi with Sprite? The next day... December 23rd, Jim and Sandy had a Christmas celebration planned with their family. Around 4.30 p.m., Jim's brother Herman and his family came by the house. When they knocked on the front door, they received no answer. Getting a weird feeling, Herman went around the back to try the back door, but it was locked as well. He eventually went to the garage door, which was open, and the door to the house unlocked. He went inside and let his family in through the front door. Seeing no one, they kind of stood questioning for a minute before they began to hear Sandy screaming. Rushing to the master bathroom, they noticed a chair propped up under the closet door handle and Sandy's cries for help coming from inside. When they opened the door, Sandy was lying face down on the ground, her arms tied behind her back and her ankles bound together. 
Rather than her wrists being tied, her forearms were actually bound and were basically stacked on top of each other. They attempted to untie her, but the bindings were so tight that they had to cut them off, which will be a very important detail. How did we go from a little sexy time with the lean in the jacuzzi to tied up in the closet? As soon as Sandy was freed, they began to look for Jim, who was nowhere to be seen. Inside the master bedroom was another closet, which was the logical place to look based on Sandy being found in the bathroom closet. Unfortunately, Jim wasn't as lucky as Sandy. His legs were bound with a telephone cord, and a rope was wrapped around his torso. He was stabbed and cut a total of 31 times, along with suffering extreme blunt force trauma to his face. His hands were covered in defensive wounds, meaning he violently fought his attacker for his life, but unfortunately he did not survive the encounter. When Sandy found his body, she was absolutely hysterical. Bland hysteria perchance? Police were called and quickly arrived at the scene. In crime scene photos, it's obvious that the bedroom was ransacked. By someone who knew their way around the house, perhaps. Drawers are pulled open and their contents spilled on the floor. Sandy's purse and Jim's wallet were emptied onto the bed. The closet was covered in Jim's blood, including the handle of a safe that sat next to his body. They also noticed that there was a handgun openly sitting on a shelf above Jim's head. There were bloody handprints on the clothes rack and shelf, most likely from Jim pulling himself up in an attempt to grab the weapon. In the master bedroom, where Sandy was found, there were signs of the romantic night the two had spent together. A bowl of strawberries and whipped cream sat on the edge of the tub, and their empty drink glasses were nearby. Police also noticed that the tub was still partially filled, and in the water sat a white blouse, towels, and a large knife, likely the one used to stab Jim to death. It had been taken from the Melgar's kitchen. Paramedics also arrived to check over Sandy. She told them that the left side of her head hurt and that her joints were stiff and sore, both symptoms that she explained were common for her to experience after a grand mal seizure. How do we know she had a grand mal seizure? Um, when you have epilepsy for like 30 years, you usually know what it feels like to wake up from having a seizure. Paramedics didn't find a single wound on Sandy, including her arms and her ankles, where she said she'd been tied up so tightly the bindings had to be cut off of her. And she was saying she'd been there for... 14 hours is how long from where she remembers to when she was found. She was in the closet for 14 hours. Damn. They also found no wounds on her hands, something she'd likely have if she had been the one in the violent struggle with Jim. She originally agreed to be taken to the hospital, but once she arrived, felt that she didn't need treatment for anything and declined to be seen. Police then picked her up for questioning. So what are the police thinking at this point? This woman's just a liar and tied herself up? Basically, yeah. They, I mean, it's like the logical place to start in any investigation. When there's two people in a house and they're married, it's always going to be the wife. So that's their go-to. Mm. First thing you do? And they stay with. You check the Drano containers. If there's Drano missing, she probably put some in his food. I don't think you read this. I read this all the way through. She explained that after having dinner and stopping for drinks the night before, she noticed a car following behind them on their drive home for longer than she felt was normal. Eventually, the car turned off, and she laughed it off, thinking she was just being paranoid. <laughs> oh, silly Sandy. You're a strong woman. Once they got home, they got in their tub and spent a few hours talking about their futures and plans to travel and had sex. At some point, their four small dogs, who had been in the backyard, began barking. Jim got out of the tub and went to let them inside. After he'd been gone for a few minutes, Sandy also got out of the tub and went into the bathroom closet to put on lotion and get dressed. What kind of dogs do they have? 
little dogs, chihuahuas. She sat down on a chair kept in the closet, and the next thing she remembers is waking up on the 23rd, feeling like she'd had a seizure. Sandy told detectives that she did not hear anything after Jim had gotten out of the tub because the noise of the jacuzzi running was loud enough to cover up any noise around the home. That's pretty convenient for Sandy. So, and I didn't have my hearing aid in either, sir. They had trouble believing this, as the back door Jim had gone to was not far from the master bedroom, close enough that she'd have heard some kind of struggle had it occurred. Sandy also estimated that Jim had been gone for around 10 to 15 minutes before she decided to get out of the tub and get dressed. So, they're in the tub for a while, right? A couple hours, yeah. A couple hours, plus 15 minutes. She's a two-hour, 15-minute prune at this point. See, that's the thing, is that those tubs don't stay hot that long. That's true. That's true, too. And then, here's the other thing, okay? You take a prune, and you put ties on it for 14 hours, you're going to leave some marks. Well, I see, the other thing is the cops can't really say what another person heard. Like, it's impossible for you not to have heard bullshit. Exactly. But then also, who leaves the jacuzzi tub on once they get out of it? Not a single person in the world. I don't know. I don't know if she left it on thinking that he was going to come back and get back in, or if she had gone to get dressed and then she was going to come back and turn it off. I don't know exactly what was going on. Hmm. One of them, I don't remember where I saw it, but one of the documentaries I watched said something about a switch being in the closet for the jacuzzi. Ooh, fancy. That is pretty fancy. Yeah, so I don't know how that correlates but it's also possible that she was planning on using the steam to keep the bathroom warm to poop because that's what i do when the bathroom's cold shower on steam warmth warm bathroom poop then shower obviously detectives were suspicious one why was sandy not at all concerned when jim was gone for such a long period of time most people would become at least curious where their partner had gone if they had been missing for five minutes when they'd gone to just complete a simple task that shouldn't have taken long. Two, how is it possible that someone broke in and began struggling with Jim and Sandy heard nothing? How was someone able to sneak into the closet and hit her over the head without her at least hearing footsteps approaching? The intruders possibly had two options to enter the home, the first being the back door that Jim had opened to let the dogs inside. The second is the garage door that Jim's brother had used to enter the house on the 23rd. This would mean that they'd forgotten to close the actual rolling garage door, along with forgetting to lock the interior door that allowed entry into the home. But it is entirely possible that the intruders had used that as their exit point, and that is why it was left unlocked and opened, and the Melgars had shut it when they'd arrived home. Even if they had left it open and the intruders entered that way, they still have to walk basically directly in front of Jim's line of sight to get to the bedroom to knock Sandy out before attacking him. Had the attack occurred while Sandy was still sitting and waiting in the tub for Jim to return, how could she have not heard anything? The bedroom closet was roughly 30 feet away from where Sandy was sitting. Jim had received in total over 50 wounds, some of those from stabbing and some from blunt force trauma. There's absolutely no way Sandy would not hear a massive struggle along with Jim's head basically being beaten in 30 feet away from her. Squelch. There was no blood anywhere in the home besides the bedroom closet, along with some spatter under the bed and on a chair nearby. So the attack absolutely 100% occurred and stayed in the closet. Detective also noticed that although the house looked like it had been ransacked, nothing had actually been stolen. The murder weapon had also been taken from the kitchen, meaning the intruders entered the home with the intent to kill, but did not bring their own weapon. 
that's a smart way to do it sometimes if you're planning to just toss the weapon in the jacuzzi on your way out. Right, or they walked in, saw Jim there, and grabbed the first weapon that they could. Yeah. Two detectives, Sandy's story was just all too convenient. Someone had broken into their home and killed her husband, but had left her totally unharmed, tied up in the closet, and she had heard nothing and had no memory of the events leading up to her waking up on the floor. Around 30 minutes into her interview, Sandy also begins requesting a lawyer. Luckily for detectives, rather than saying the magic words, I want a lawyer, she instead told them, I think I'm going to need a lawyer. Adding the I think carefully skirts around Sandy's Miranda rights and is an opinion rather than a request, allowing them to continue the interrogation. Ooh, is that sketchy cop tactics? 100% legal. Your Miranda rights just barely protect you. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's not sketchy cop tactics, right? Yeah, it's sketchy cop tactics for sure. They don't really care, though. If it holds up in a court of law, then that's all you need. It's the gray side of legal. This is why if you sit down and they read you your Miranda rights, you say, I want a lawyer and literally nothing else. Mm -hmm. They then moved on to asking Sandy to take a polygraph. Once again, their suspicions were raised when Sandy told them that she would take one, but not right at that moment. She explained that she was extremely emotional due to having just lost her husband and felt that it would affect the results of the polygraph. Detectives then attempted to psychologically break Sandy by reminding her that she would have heard Jim while he was being attacked, saying, help me, Sandra, I need help for, like, probably a good minute or two. The detectives were saying that? One of them, yeah. He was going, help me, Sandra, help me. And it was the most annoying fucking thing. Imagine, though, that she is innocent, and these cops are just doing this to her on a fucking hunch. Sandra was let go, and without any legitimate evidence besides suspicion, she was not charged for a year. In 2013, she was indicted on first-degree murder, and her trial began. The assistant district attorney prosecuting the case had created the perfect story for the jury. After enjoying their time in the tub, Sandy had Jim sit in a chair kept by their bed, telling him she had some sort of sexy surprise, which was backed up by the fact that sex toys were found under a pillow on the bed. Once Jim was sat down and distracted, Sandy approached him from behind and slit his throat. Completely shocked but still alive, Jim did not fight back as Sandy began stabbing him over and over. Eventually, he fell to the closet floor, where she continued stabbing until Jim was dead. Covered in blood, Sandy tossed her shirt, the knife, and towels into the tub where they were found. She showered off the blood, dressed, and ransacked the home to make it appear it had been burgled. She then opened the garage door, knowing that her brother-in-law was coming over the next day for the Christmas party and would need a way inside. The prosecution relied heavily on the Christmas party aspect, saying that Sandy committed the crime when she did because it would allow her enough time to set the scene, but not so long that she would be stuck tied in the closet for days or even weeks. Isn't there a problem with the fact that they're saying Jim didn't fight back, but didn't he have defensive wounds on his hands? There's many problems with all of this. Nope, sounds right to me. Finally, she locked herself in the closet by placing a rug underneath the chair that she had propped into place. Closing the door, she was able to pull the rug under the door, pulling the chair with it until it was wedged under the door handle. This is actually entirely possible, and the prosecution showed a video they'd created proving it so. It seems a little different to think of something like that, like on the spot, rather than see it afterwards and reverse engineer how it could have happened. They're like, yeah, this is possible. It was actually the police crime scene video where, for whatever fucking reason, While investigating, they decided to prove that Sandy could have locked herself in the closet. Sandy then tied her ankles together and then bound her arms, 
once again possible and proved to be so with the video. The prosecutor also got up and like literally tied herself up in front of the jury to prove it. And on many videos, she loves showing it off. <laughs> She's like one of those people on Instagram now who just ties herself up. Those are called shibari girls. For motive, the prosecution pointed out Jim's $250,000 life insurance policy, along with their religion as the driving factor. Jehovah's Witnesses, like most Christians, are forbidden from divorce. Sandy was unhappy in the marriage, and of course the only option was to kill her husband. The jury was convinced and convicted Sandy of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 27 years. I think you'd have to be Catholic to kill your husband because you don't want to get divorced. You would be forgiven. Well, you got to say some Hail Marys afterwards, but... So that's the thing that the prosecutor actually talked about, is that Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in any sort of heaven or hell. So there's... Basically, you die, and then you just, like, hang around and wait until the 144,000 are brought back to life during the... Not the second coming, what do you call it? The rapture? The rapture, yeah, something like that. I don't know. I don't so know what Jehovah's Witness call it, the rapture, but... It's something like, basically, you, you literally just die, and then you wait, and if you're chosen, you get to come back with the 144,000, which is only, like, 12,000 spots left or something stupid. So they said, so she can kill her husband... But she doesn't have to worry about any sort of, like, afterlife punishment because she's not, she's just not going to go anywhere. She just won't come back. Hmm. She'll still be in the 144,000. You know what's funny about the Jehovah's Witnesses that uh, they're there. They're like, we're the 144,000. We're not trying to get anybody new. Sucks to be you, buddy. You're a chump. They're always trying to get new people. Why do you think they go door to door? Do you think they just tell you, like, hey, I'm part of the 144,000? Knock, knock. Suck Who's it. there? Saved. So case closed, right? Sandy's story was just too convenient to be true. The prosecution proved motive and a jury convicted. The only problem is that there are some glaring discrepancies that make it impossible for Sandy to have killed her husband. First, her health conditions. One very common symptom of a grand mal seizure is memory loss. Sandy's neurologist specifically said that it is not only possible, but likely that she would not remember what occurred before she began to seize. A few weeks after her interview with detectives, Sandy actually recovered some of that memory. She said that she remembered a young, possibly early 20s Hispanic woman wearing a burgundy shirt who looked angry, speaking to a person that was tying Sandy up. So is this part of the thing, too, where memories can come back? Recovered memories are possible. Keeping our focus on her health, recall that Sandy had rheumatoid arthritis, along with a double hip replacement. The Melgar's daughter, Liz, would later say that Sandy had an extremely hard time holding onto items because of her arthritis. If she couldn't just simply hold something in her hand, there's no way she would be able to grip a knife tightly enough to not only stab Jim, but stab him while he was fighting against her. Sandy was also only 5'4", significantly smaller than Jim. There's no conceivable way that she could have overpowered him, along with violently fighting him. Were they like motorcycle riders no what this brings us to the lack of wounds found on sandy by the medics if jim was covered in defensive wounds bruises and abrasions from fighting with his attacker it isn't possible that the attacker would be completely unharmed especially if that attacker was sandy who would have had trouble holding onto the knife and likely had the blade slip in her bloody hands and cut her palms Medics also noted that Sandy did not have any sort of head wound from the hit that supposedly knocked her out, but when she saw a doctor a few days after the event, they noticed that she did, indeed, have a head injury. Next, police were adamant about the fact that nothing was stolen, which proved that a robbery never occurred. Except, when they asked Liz to look around and tell them if anything was missing, she pointed out multiple items. 
The whole television was gone, the cord still plugged into the wall, making it very obvious that it had definitely been there very recently. And this was, what, in, like, 2012, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So, yay, this wasn't, like, big, huge uh, tube TVs. This was, like, this this flat screens where you can unplug them, leave the cables. Mm Mm-hmm. Probably still heavy, though. Still heavy, but obviously, like... It wasn't very big. It was probably, like, maybe a 24-inch. Liz herself also found a backpack in the garage full of items from inside the home such as jewelry and an Xbox. The backpack was pushed underneath Sandy's car like it had been dropped and kicked under the car while the intruders were in a rush to get out of the house. Possibly the most damning evidence was the fact that there was DNA on the backpack. Not Sandy's, not Jim's, but an unknown female's. This same unknown female DNA was found inside the home on multiple items, including the jewelry boxes, that just so happened to be missing items. An unknown male's DNA was also found in the home and likely would have been found in more places had the detectives done their jobs. I mentioned earlier the safe inside the closet with blood on the handle. When detectives were asked if they tested that blood, they said they had not because they knew it would come back belonging to Sandy. It would come back to Sandy? Yeah, because she did it. Yeah, they just... These cops are just that good that they can see the difference in people's bloods. Yeah, see, even though she had no wounds, but she bled everywhere. She bled all over the place. Mm-hmm. It would have, you know, lent more credence to their story to say, oh, no, we knew that was going to be Jim's. Like, oh, that was all Jim's blood. These cops, you know, they're not only are they crooked, they're also dumb. The DNA was found on the scarf used to tie Sandy, which perfectly matches her recollection of a female speaking to a man who was tying her up. There was also a report from a local news reporter who was outside the home after Sandy had been discovered. She noticed there was a man hanging around, acting quite odd. When she asked who he was, he said he was a neighbor and just seeing what was going on. If anyone ever says that they're just a neighbor, just seeing what's going on, they're not a neighbor. Seeing what's going on, punch him in the face. His behavior was suspicious enough for him to be reported to police, who knew of him because he had a history of both violence and robbery charges. Police attempted to contact him, but both times they went to his home, he did not answer the door. After leaving their business cards and not being contacted, they decided to not pursue the lead. This is a very glaring lack of police work right there. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like they went one day and like three days later they came back. They went twice in one day. Like, oh shit, he's still not home. And they were like, obviously when there's a bunch of cops knocking on your door. And you you just, he, he was bailed out of jail or released from jail, I think, two days before this happened. There was also a very similar incident that happened not far from the Melger home with an almost identical M.O. Police never looked into the case for possible connections. Not only was the crime scene not processed properly in any way, shape, or form, but detectives relied solely on their own confirmation bias and refused to look at any other possible option besides Sandy. The lead detective on the case was so bad that two years later, he was forced to resign from the police department after he was caught forging search warrants. When they cleared out his office, they found untested evidence from the Melgar case sitting in a drawer. Did they test it then, or was it too late? I'm not sure what they've done with it, honestly. I don't know if it's just, like, random extra samples of the unknown male and female DNA, because at that point you really can't do anything else with it, unless you keep running it through CODIS till you get a match. Finally, let's look at motive. The prosecution claimed that Sandy wanted a divorce, but could not get one because of their religion, along with Jim's $250,000 life insurance policy. Detectives did not speak to any of the Melgar's friends or family, 
but through interviews with news stations, it has become well known that Jim and Sandy were basically the perfect couple. They loved each other unconditionally, they rarely, if ever, fought, and they had the rest of their lives together planned. They wanted to travel after they retired, they planned on selling Sandy's car for extra cash. They were empty nesters, and they planned on doing everything they could to spend the rest of their lives enjoying themselves. For the last 32 years, Jim had been Sandy's main caretaker and never once complained about it. He not only raised their child when Sandy was too sick or hospitalized, but he also cared for Sandy at the same time. She was unable to work because of her health conditions, and he was happy to be the breadwinner to make her life easier. He also provided Sandy with health insurance through his job, which is far more valuable for someone with chronic health conditions than $250,000, at least here in America. $250,000 does not pay for a lifetime of lupus. No, that nah. pays for, like, maybe if she needs another hip replacement for both of them, that'll maybe cover it. Yeah. And some downtime, and that's about it. I think you can get 18 to 21 months of lupus for that cost. I was, like, typing that, and I was like, oh, that's really sad. Without Jim, Sandy was insuranceless, had no income, and was unable to care for herself. Why anyone would think that she would ever kill him is beyond me. With all of that laid out, I figured I could tell the events that I believe occurred that night, and then maybe you guys can share your theories if they're legitimate. So, after returning home from dinner and spending their time in the tub, Jim got out to let the dogs inside. Because they'd been distracted, the garage door had accidentally been left open, allowing the man and woman intruder to enter the house through the interior door, which family said was never locked. When they entered, they realized that there were people home, and briefly had to figure out what they were going to do. Because they were near the kitchen, they each grabbed a knife as they'd come unarmed, expecting no one to be there. The dogs likely noticed them and began barking, so Jim came out to let them in. He was approached by the couple and threatened to keep quiet, probably the typical, don't say anything and your wife won't get hurt. Jim complied. Conversation likely ensued, explaining why he'd been gone so long before Sandy decided to get out of the tub. His ankles were tied and the rope wrapped around his torso, rendering him unable to move briefly while the couple snuck up on Sandy and hit her over the head and began tying her up. Because she remembers the woman's face, her seizure likely didn't start until during or after the tying, and when it did, the couple believed that she was dying, explaining why she was left unhurt. They blocked off the door just in case and returned to Jim, likely still complying to ensure his wife was left unharmed. The couple then asked Jim where the money was kept, and he led them to the safe in the closet. As he entered, the couple realized that Jim's gun was sitting on a shelf and assumed he was leading them there so he could use it. They panicked and attacked, a violent struggle ensued, and Jim was eventually killed. Now fully in panic mode, they attempted to open the safe but were unable to do so, so they began quickly searching the house for anything valuable. Grabbing the TV, jewelry, and Xbox, they tossed the knife into the tub and wiped themselves off with Sandy's blouse and the towels, which they also threw into the water. They then left out of the garage, dropping the bag while struggling with the television. At this point, it was around 2 a.m., so they were able to escape unseen. So how... At what point did they tie up Jim for him to be able to lead them to the other closet? That was my question. It's not perfect. There's many things but his ankles were tied and his the rope around his torso was like loosely wrapped around him so, so it's possible they tied him up, him up to go in the closet yeah i don't know exactly but this is kind of like a basic what might have happened pretty much nailed every component there to what could have gone down 
Why did they, uh, why did they, why do you suppose they tied her arms up so weird? I don't know, probably because they figured that she wasn't going to be able to get out. I mean, I think if your wrists are tied, you have a lot more room to move. But if you're tied like this, like, you're not going anywhere. They're you're like... tied. To this day, Sandy maintains her innocence and is backed fully by her family. She appealed her sentence in August 2020, but because the court could not consider any new evidence, her appeal was denied. Her case was taken over by famed attorney Kathleen Zeltner, who has helped overturn many wrongful convictions. The Melgars are hopeful that Zellner will prove Sandy's innocence and overturn her conviction. For a very in-depth look into the case, the Truth and Justice podcast has done a series on Sandy that I have not listened to, but the 2020 episode talked highly of it and interviewed the guy. So check that out. Never even heard of it before that, but apparently he does a lot of wrongful convictions. What do you think happened, Roar? She did it. You actually, like, legitimately think she did it, or are you bullshitting? I'm going to put out my theory. Okay. Uh, husband's a little freaky, Jimbo. They involved knife play, and it got a little out of hand because he fell when uh, she started seizing, and she accidentally slit his throat because she had a knife to his throat and started stabbing because she couldn't control herself from her seizures. She awoke to find what she had done and figured out a way around it, planned her way out, did the whole thing with the chair, tricked the police by putting her husband's blood everywhere. What about the unknown DNA? And how would she have tied her arms like this behind her back? She was, her new hips gave her extra flexibility. She did it with her feet. Answers for everything, But Katie. then her ankles, how did she tie her ankles? With her feet, again. Well, first she tied her feet and ankles, and then she tied her hands, which mm-hmm. they showed a video feet. proving was possible. So, no, I actually don't think that happened. I think what she remembers is correct, that two people broke into her house and killed her, and she was upstairs, or killed her husband, and she was upstairs lotioning up from the jacuzzi and everything. I believe that's actually... Single-story house? Single-story house? Oh, well, then she was in her bedroom lotioning. I can't hear shit that happens in the front of the house when I have my shower going. Yeah, so basically, like, the layout of the house, if I can... Visualize. So there's the master bedroom here. There's the bathroom attached to it, basically. Closets back here. Closets here in the master. And then the backyard is right outside both the bathroom and the master. Mm. So Jim's here. Sandy's here in the closet or in the bathroom. And then he's eventually, like, here. And then there's the rest of the house kitchen. There's, like, a living room. And then open kind of space between the kitchen and the back door. In case you guys didn't get that at home, it's here, here, and here is where they were found. I tried to find a diagram, and I can't, so I might have to, like, draw one and put it it on Facebook. Yeah. What do you you got, Jake? Do you think that prosthetic hips lie? What do you... What does that mean? They're made out of titanium. Well, regular hips don't lie. Do prosthetic hips lie? Yes, because they're fake. My theory is that after 32 years of... Taking care of Sandy, Jim finally had had enough. He knew it was only going to get worse, and he wasn't down for diapers, especially with the kids out of the house. So he waited until she had a seizure, put a knife in her hand, and flopped down on her one last time. I don't think you guys have ever seen a seizure, have you? Mm -hmm. I I had a cat. That's why mine was joking. Yeah, because, like, you can't 
you're not going to hold on to a knife and not just stab yourself. If you're a biker chick, you pretty you much lock up. Mm-hmm. You don't like flail around. I don't know why you think people flail around when they're having a seizure. My cat but... looked like a shrimp. It was curled. Okay, that's a cat, though. This is a human being. <laughs> so you think that Jim killed himself and then stabbed himself 31 times, stabbed his hands up, and then beat his own skull in after he was dead, though. Well, she might have beat his own skull in for him. It's not going to do it for us this week, Katie. That is it, yes. All right, guys. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast on Twitter at fourcornerscast and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And head on over to Apple Podcasts. Give us a rate and review there. Follow us on Spotify. You can head over to our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, to get a full episode list or to give us a suggestion for an episode you want to hear or to, or you can get a sticker over there. Bingo, bango, in the cart. Put it in. There you go. We'll send it to you for free. So make sure you lock your door in your garage this week. All right. Talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. I had a cat had a seizure. Okay. He was an orange tabby, and he rolled over on his back in my living room and went...